0: Well, dear friends, our text this afternoon, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. It's the second week in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Our text this afternoon is often referred to as the birth narrative in Matthew's Gospel, But I'd like to begin by suggesting that it isn't that. If it were a birth narrative, we'd expect it to tell us something about how Jesus was born. Yet in the text Darren read just a few minutes ago, there are no details about Jesus's birth. Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25 is not the story to be read by the fire on Christmas Eve. There is no trip to Bethlehem. There is no manger, there are no angels rejoicing, there are no shepherds looking for a babe in a swaddling clothes, nothing to dramatize on Christmas cards. In only the barest and briefest terms does Matthew even mention the fact that Jesus was born. Finally, in verse 25, where that's not even really the point of the verse. Our text this afternoon isn't a birth narrative, it's an origin story, and I'd like to suggest it's an origin story that serves a very specific purpose in its context here in Matthew. Now before we get right into that, let me say what it is that I propose to do in this sermon, and that's two things. First, as I've said, I I want us to consider what the objective of this text is. It's a passage with lots of fascinating details, but what's it doing in the flow of Matthew's gospel? What is Matthew's objective here, in other words? And then secondly, having settled that, I'd like to consider briefly the account of Joseph and reflect on Joseph's obedience. So those are the two headings under which we'll consider the text this afternoon, Matthew's objective and Joseph's obedience. So we begin then with Matthew's objective. And just as we saw last week, that means we have to begin with a translational matter because the word here that in the ESV is translated birth in verse 18 is once again the word genesis Greek. in Greek, origin, beginnings. It's the same word that appeared, if you were here last week, in verse 1 of Matthew 1. Remember this from last week? Matthew 1, verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But we talked about the fact that that word behind genealogy in the ESV is actually the word genesis. Now, that same word is used again here in verse 18. So if you were reading Matthew's chapter 1 in Greek, the connection would be unmistakable. Matthew intends for the reader to see that verses 18 to 25 are an extension, or maybe even better, an explanation of the genealogy in verses 1 to 17. In what way? Well, let's back up and review for a moment. Last week, we said that Matthew's genealogy is carefully designed, it's structured actually, to emphasize that Jesus is the Christ, the messianic son of David. From the climactic mention of David the king in verse six, at the end of Matthew's first group of 14 generations in that genealogy, Matthew's primary point, then, is to trace the royal lineage of Jesus. And so you'll recall that the second set of 14 generations in verses 6b to 11 was a slightly shortened list of kings that ran from the united monarchy under David to the exile, to the deportation of Judah to Babylon at the time of Jeconiah. And then, though we don't have any Old Testament record for most of the names in verses 12 to 16, It's not hard to recognize that what Matthew's done there is to preserve for us a continued genealogy of that Davidic kingly line. Though the monarchy itself is in eclipse, Matthew wants to emphasize for his readers that Jesus is part of the line descended from David, making him the ultimate son of David. We talked about that. But what we didn't talk about last week is the surprise that comes at the end of that Davidic line in Matthew 1, verse 16. Because there, at the conclusion, what we find is a remarkable departure from the pattern of what had come before it. And I don't know how to get this across, except to quite quickly again read just a section of that genealogy, beginning in verse 12. Just listen to it, Matthew 1, verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And there you hear it, right? Matthew doesn't say, and Joseph, the father of Jesus, who is called Christ, as the pattern of the genealogy would lead us to expect. That's not what we get. What we get is Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And note the use of the passive voice there. No one, humanly speaking, fathered Jesus. Jesus was born of Mary. So that the reader of the genealogy is then prompted to ask, why this change? Is Joseph the father of Jesus or not? What happened? And importantly then in Matthew's context, why bother to trace the lineage of Jesus through Joseph if he didn't father Jesus, right? That's what verse 18 and following is all about. Verse 18 is not the beginning of some new and unrelated story of the way Jesus came to be born, It's not even really Matthew's Christmas narrative. It's an explanation of the genealogy that ended so mysteriously in verse 16. And though I said last week that that word Genesis can be translated birth and that I thought verse 18 was a good example of that. I've changed my mind. (laughs) I don't think we should translate Genesis as birth in verse 18. I think the verse should read this way. Now, the Genesis or origin of Jesus Messiah was in this way. And of course, you know it. The explanation is that Joseph didn't beget Jesus as Jacob, his father begot him. The explanation is that Jesus was conceived from the Holy Spirit. And what fascinates me is that in one sense, Matthew doesn't even make a big deal of that fact. He just states it. The end of verse 18 simply says, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That in some way completely mysterious, yet nonetheless real, Mary's pregnancy was caused by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit accomplished Mary's pregnancy is one way you could put it. Mary's being pregnant was from the Holy Spirit. And Matthew says nothing more about it, right? It's just stated as a fact. And putting it that way at the end of verse 18 is actually just Matthew's summary looking back because right away in verse 19, we learn that Joseph didn't have a clue that that was the cause of Mary's pregnancy. He'd find it out from an angel of the Lord in verse 20. The angel of the Lord said to him in a dream, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And again, the language there is simple but careful The angel doesn't say the Holy Spirit conceived the child as though the Spirit somehow fulfills the male role in the act of conception. No, that's not it. It's that in some way, the Spirit was the source of Jesus's origin as a human child. That the Holy Spirit somehow made the pre-existent second person of the Trinity into a human being. That just as the spirit was hovering over the face of the waters at creation in Genesis chapter one, so here for our salvation, the spirit has overshadowed Mary's womb. That's the language Luke uses in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, making God's Son into one of us. Just think on that for a moment. It's a complete mystery, dear friends. But the fact that we can't explain it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And the point I'm making here is that Matthew simply says it happened. The objective of chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, isn't to prove that Jesus was born of a virgin. The virginal conception is something that's taken for granted by Matthew. However, you and I might struggle to accept it. What has to be explained, you see, from Matthew's point of view is not how something so extraordinary could come to pass, but how Jesus, who had no physical human father, could be the son of David. In Matthew's mind, the virginal conception is dealt with as a problem for Jesus's lineage. And that's what the direct angelic intervention is designed to solve, you see, because here's a clue. What's the final point Matthew stresses at the very end of our text? Isn't it interesting and perhaps a bit surprising when you think about it that the concluding emphasis falls not on the birth of the Son, but on the naming of the Son by Joseph in obedience to the instructions of the angel? You shall call his name, Jesus, the angel said. And that's the final comment in verse 25. And he, Joseph, called his name, Jesus. You shall call his name, Jesus, the angel said. The question is, why Joseph? The answer is that it had to be Joseph because, and this is critical, Because according to what I've read this week, naming the child in that context, naming the child was usually the responsibility of the legal father. And it was that it was the naming of the child by the father, which ensured the official status of the child as son and as heir. In other words, it was the acknowledgement of a child by the father that officially made the child his son. All of which means that it's through the naming of this child that Jesus becomes the son of David. Joseph makes Mary's son his own son. He took Mary as his wife, and he called the boy's name Jesus, and by doing so, by accepting Mary as his wife and by naming his child, Joseph officially bestows upon Jesus the status of a descendant of David. That's the point. Did you notice how the angel refers to Joseph in verse 20? Right at the top of the quote in verse 20, the angel says, Joseph son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That is the only time in Matthew's gospel that anyone other than Jesus is referred to as a son of David. And once you see all this, you can't miss it. Everything hangs on Joseph's response here. Well, I mean everything having to do with Jesus being the son of David hangs on it. Of course, Mary's own Faithful response is critical, and you can read about that in Luke's gospel. Luke's focused on Mary, but Matthew's focused on Joseph because Joseph is a son of David, and it's only if Joseph comes through here that Jesus can legitimately be called the son of David as well. Then praise the Lord, Joseph did come through, brothers and sisters. Saint Joseph was a righteous, faithful man. But that's what we'll focus on in a minute. My thing here is that you cannot appreciate the faith of Joseph if you don't see why it mattered so much. And that's what Matthew's focused on. That's the objective of this origin story. Matthew 1 verses 18 to 25 reveals how Jesus, who wasn't the biological son of Joseph because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, became Joseph's legal son and was thereby grafted into David's line through Joseph's juridical recognition of him as his own son. Matthew's objective is not to spotlight the virginal conception so much as to narrate how Jesus is the messianic son of David in spite of the virginal conception which is why Matthew is almost entirely focused on Joseph. And that's why it's Joseph's story that I want to focus our attention on briefly now, ultimately so that we can then consider something of Joseph's obedience. We don't get any backstory here. From other texts, we know Joseph was a carpenter, but that's not in focus here, nor is anything else about him. Other than that he was of the line of David in verse 18 Matthew begins with the fact that Mary Jesus's mother had been betrothed to Joseph and that before they came together she was found to be with child and you've probably heard this before if you've been around you know the church long enough or read your Bibles and heard people explain this but betrothal in those days was kind of like engagement in our day and kind of not. And the simplest way to put it is that betrothal was more concrete, more binding than engagement is today. Betrothal wasn't so much a promise to marry as it was the first stage of marriage. Customarily, the parents of a young man chose a young woman to be engaged to their son and then in a formal prenuptial agreement before witnesses, the young man and the woman entered into the official state of betrothal, and it was a legally binding contract is the point. It could only be broken by a formal process of divorce, and so serious was it that the terminology husband and wife was used even during that stage to refer to the betrothed partners which is all why, in verse 19, Matthew says, and her husband Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly, even though they weren't fully married yet. But also critical to the picture here is that in that betrothal stage, the young man and woman weren't living together yet. Sexual relations between the betrothed partners weren't tolerated. That's what Matthew's highlighting in verse 18 when he says Mary had been betrothed to Joseph and was found to be with child before they came together. That is, before they lived together and were in a sexual relationship. Given all of that, it's no surprise that sexual unfaithfulness with Another person during the stage of betrothal was considered to be adultery. The full penalty for which was death by stoning, according to the law, though by New Testament times, stoning was exceedingly rare. Still, you get the point. It would have been devastating when Joseph found that Mary was pregnant. He may have found that simply because it was obvious, according to Luke, Mary had spent three months with Elizabeth. So this episode in Matthew probably is happening when she's about four months pregnant. And I don't know what Mary did or didn't say to Joseph about it. We don't have here, of course, any of the Lucan narratives regarding the annunciation to Mary and so on. And interestingly, neither Matthew nor Luke share anything about what was said between them. But the basic obvious inference from verse 19 is that Joseph, betrothed to Mary, knew this pregnancy meant something terrible, that the marriage could not go forward. The only question in his mind was how he should end it. And what Matthew says in verse 19 is that Joseph was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. The language of being just is literally to be righteous. Joseph was a righteous man, a faithful observer of the law. He knew he wasn't the father of the child, and so he knows he cannot follow through and marry her because that would condone what he thinks is mary's sin of adultery joseph in his in his in his view has only two options open to him on the one hand he could seek a public divorce where her condition would become known overtly and his reputation then would be fully exonerated on the other hand he could decide to divorce her privately Raising perhaps more questions and suspicions, and at least according to a couple of the scholars I read, potentially meaning that Joseph could lose significant sums of money that he would have already pledged to Mary in the betrothal process. That was the choice before Joseph. And he made it well. The law didn't require the deed to be made public. And though it would come at some cost to himself, Joseph resolved to handle the situation privately because Joseph was a good guy. As a righteous man, he was also concerned about mercy. He was the model of a law-observant Jew who blends submission to the law with compassion for others. But... As he considered these things, Matthew says in verse 20, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. In other words, now that language makes sense, right? In other words, don't fear the consequences and stigma that will be attached to you when you complete the wedding stage of the marital relationship, right? Why not? I mean, you have to wonder whether Joseph thought anyone would believe this. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Last week, we discussed how the name Jesus means Yahweh saves, we discussed how In Psalm 130, verse 8, God promises to redeem Israel from all its iniquities and that the angel here now is ascribing that task to Jesus because Jesus, the Messiah, is God incarnate whose miraculous conception and origin are only explained through the work of God, the Holy Spirit. Will Joseph believe it? God has taken the initiative to do more than provide Israel with a Messiah who will produce military victories. With the conception of this child, God has acted to redeem humankind. Human genealogical possibilities have been completed and exhausted and God now steps in. He will save his people from their sins. Even here, I think, meaning not just the Jewish people, but the new Israel. That includes people of every tribe and tongue and nation, just as we considered last week Jesus being both the son of David and son of Abraham. What an astounding revelation was given to Joseph, husband of Mary, and it might be that that wasn't the end of it. Most English translations do end the quotation from the angel at the end of verse 21. And that may well be right, but at least a few prominent New Testament scholars maintain that verses 22 and 23 containing that quote from Isaiah 7 verse 14 were also part of what the angel said, rather than an aside that's inserted here by Matthew. I'm not sure we can know absolutely which of those views is the right one, and in the end, maybe it doesn't much matter, because whether Joseph heard these next words from the angel, or Matthew added them for his readers, the challenge Joseph faced is the one we also must wrestle with. Will we accept that this child is who the angel says he is? who Matthew affirms he is, that he is Jesus Emmanuel, God with us? Will we believe it? Isaiah 7 verse 14 speaks of a sign, a virgin conception and birth. Only according to Isaiah 7 verse 13, It was a sign that would be given to the house of David. And without getting into all the weeds of the complexities of Isianic exegesis, while there is a child born in Isaiah chapter 8, that child was not the full fulfillment of this prophecy, is how I view it. That as we read on in Isaiah, especially into Isaiah chapters 9 and chapters 11, we learn of a unique child still to come. One commentator says there will be a super fulfillment of that prophecy. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 reads, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given And then listen to the language used of this child, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, picking up on the promises of 2 Samuel 7. These are the astonishing texts that are brought to mind here in Matthew. But you see, the point here again is, what does Joseph have to do with Jesus? And the answer is, Joseph adopts Jesus into that house of David. These prophecies of Isaiah... We're coming true, but would Joseph believe it? When the angel told Joseph Mary would bear a son, he used the language from Isaiah 7, verse 14, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. When the angel told Joseph he shall call his name Jesus, For he will save his people from their sins. Isaiah seven verse 14 is the explanation for how that would work. It would be because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And of course, Joseph's faith was remarkable. We read about it in verses 24 and 25 as we conclude our text this afternoon. Look now at Joseph's obedience. When Joseph woke from sleep, verse 24 says, actually the verb is when he was awoken, (laughs) the Lord woke him up. When Joseph woke from sleep, verse 24 says, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name, Jesus. Joseph's obedience to the message of the angel of the Lord overrules his own suspicions of Mary's faithlessness. It overrules his fear for the ruin of his own reputation and honor, at least the potential ruin of those things. As one commentator puts it, This special revelation of God at this paramount crossroad of history gives Joseph the guidance and stability that enables him to help carry out God's program of salvation, even when he will become subject to ridicule and false accusations of moral failure. I think there is much to ponder in Joseph's acceptance of God's word and God's plan And you and I will likely never experience such a dramatic uh, appearance from the Lord. But each of us will experience, we will encounter unexpected circumstances and risks as we attempt to carry out God's will for our lives. And so may Joseph's obedience inspire us to walk faithfully in all of life's circumstances. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.